Okay. Good morning again, and uh, and wonderful to see you again. And um, real blessing. We're going through a uh, an interesting new series that we sort of started to interrupt the Book of Romans yet again. Um, find myself doing that on a fairly uh, fairly regular basis. There's so much in Romans, but there are things that I feel that the Lord is sometimes um, impressing upon uh, upon me, or particularly to to give some consideration. We've got a six part series, which might extend to seven, but it's a six part series. Uh, that I'm intending on the whole concept of heaven and hell that's spoken about in the Bible. The first three we're going to be dealing with is heaven. And uh, we're up to the second one. It's great to have a knowledge of heaven. There, it's, it's incredible to be able to consider the things about heaven that we are promised in the Bible, that we are to look forward to. And there's not probably a lot spoken about with regards to it, certainly not as often as we should be. We seem to know that it's a really good place, but you know what is it specifically? What is it that, that the Bible has revealed to us? We're looking at a portion of the Bible today that you wouldn't otherwise consider necessarily with respect to heaven. Last week in Heaven Part 1, we spoke about it as the place, the dwelling place of God, that that is where God resides, God's dwelling place. And we summarized it basically stating that heaven simply wouldn't be heaven if God wasn't there. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if God wasn't there. I want you to give a consideration of a young girl who, whose mother was, um, was dying and she was taken to be with her, uh, with her uncle and auntie to avoid seeing her mother in those, in those final days. And then she was brought home and uh, her mother had already passed away and she ran into every single room looking for her mother. Uh, she ran into the bedroom, she ran into the lounge, she ran into the kitchen, she ran into, the, uh, into her own bedroom, she ran outside and then um, wasn't interested in going home anymore because her mother wasn't there and was more than happy to go back home with her auntie and her uncle. That's exactly what it's like with regards to heaven. Heaven's not going to be heaven without God there. And, uh, and that's what we're looking forward to more than anything. And here we have an interesting passage in the Bible that we don't otherwise consider with respect to heaven because it's speaking about the rapture of the church, this incredibly strange and weird event that is going to be happening at a time yet future where the entire church is going to be caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds, that, that the church itself is going to avoid a time of tribulation that is going to be poured out upon the earth um, for a period of seven years. The only areas that I'm going to be focusing on, the first two verses and the last verse of the, t of the passage, first two verses, verse 13, it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for the word of the living God. I thank you, dear Father, that within the truth of Scripture there are so many things, dear Lord, that we can see that give us an understanding of the different doctrines that are found therein. I thank you, dear Lord, for this doctrine of heaven, and I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would help me to expound the truth of this to my brethren that are here, but also, Lord, that there would be a willing heart, a willing ear, and a desire for understanding that would sink down straight into their hearts, that they would know the wonderful joy that is set before us and the hope that we are looked forward to. Bless us, dear Lord, I pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Paul here speaks about a future home, and that's the title of the message this morning, the future home. He speaks about a future home, a home that we're all going to enjoy, and he speaks about it as when Jesus shall descend from heaven, um, and he will do so for those who are dead in Christ, who shall rise first, and then in, um, and then he speaks that we that are alive and that shall remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus speaks of bringing us to that future home. Um, the Lord speaks clearly about that in John chapter 14, saying, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus is speaking about coming for his church and he's speaking about preparing a place for us. Where? Well, in his father's house. In his father's house, there are many mansions. Many mansions. Uh, it's interesting how that word's come down to us today as being something really huge, an incredible place that will be our dwelling. And to be honest, I have no idea how large these, these uh, mansions are. But mansions in the ancient days simply meant dwelling place. So I'm not expecting necessarily a little shack, but at the same time, it really doesn't matter. I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm going to be in his house and I'm happy with whatever he gives me. Happy to be a doorkeeper in the house of my Lord than to be a child of wickedness. So that is something that I am looking forward to. Now, Paul writes these things to the Thessalonians and he speaks clearly of a time yet future. A time that Jesus, having gone to heaven, now descends from heaven to gather his church together and therefore meet them in the air and ever be with the Lord. It's clear by the text that the apostle speaks of nothing other than that related to a future home. A future home. But he also draws some attention to the Thessalonian church. He speaks to the Thessalonian church about this incredible event known as the rapture of the church, which I also alluded to. But most importantly, he speaks about some elements within this that are really important for us to be able to comprehend. And they'll be the titles of the points this morning. First point is a future home to which we sorrow not. A future home to which we sorrow not. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. What has long been known to the Christians and even to the world is an understanding that heaven is not a place of sorrow. Heaven is not a place of sorrow. We've always known that. We've, we've understood the concept of heaven. Speaking about heaven, we've known and understood that it's not a place of sorrow, but a place of incredible joy, a place of peace and a place of comfort and a place that is permanent permanent it is a place that will not change this future home that we have that the the bible relates to it speaks about that which we are to look forward to in hope notice he says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope the biblical understanding is not um we're supposed to be contrary to that. We're supposed to have hope in heaven, to look forward to heaven. But the hope in the Bible is not the hope so hope that we usually 
um, that we usually consider today. So when we're speaking about something, it's usually, uh, you know, I ask people, you're going to be going to heaven when you die, and they often say, I hope so, you know. Well, it's, it, this isn't the hope so hope. That's not what we have here. What we have here is a hope that is absolutely certain. It's a certain looking forward to that which is not seen. Certain looking forward to that which is not yet seen. The apostle himself wrote, But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. In Romans eight twenty four twenty five. So this hope is more certain. We have a more certain expectation of heaven than most people have hope for anything they've planned for tomorrow. We have a more certain expectation of heaven. That's the hope that's spoken about in the Bible. It's not a it's not a hope so hope. It's not a maybe hope. It's not a if possibly, you know. It's a it's an absolute hope. The text here speaks about that we sorrow not as those who have no hope. Therefore, heaven is a place of great and exceeding joy. That's the, the, the contrary part to those who have no hope. It's a joy that's more overwhelming than anything that could have its likeness here. It's a joy and happiness that has um, long forgotten even the appearance of sorrow. Even the appearance of sorrow. We're going to be in heaven and there are going to be things on the earth that we are going to completely forget. A joy so exceeding and incredible that even the knowledge of its everlasting span is incomprehensible. We don't even understand the concept of time in heaven. Now, that, that famous hymn we spoke about even last week when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We, we can't even conceive of that. We don't even know. Is time part of heaven? I don't know, to be perfectly honest. I don't know. We know that time had a beginning. So I'm not sure if that's going to be the, uh, the dwelling place of God. Well, the apostle also wrote about heaven and, and he spoke about it as a bit of a hint. And he simply says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We can't even conceive of it. Just even that alone is astounding. And why should it not be this way? If we had seen through the Bible last week that it's God's heaven is God's dwelling place, can we, can we even begin to conceive of heaven? We can't even begin, even begin to conceive of God. There was a, uh, a famous um, author who basically wrote, if you can understand God, if you've got a God that's big enough for your mind, he's not big enough for your need. We can't even begin to conceive of heaven, let alone God. But there is something about it that we must be able to recognise. The Bible says that God is love. If God who is love and his very presence is peace and who is indeed the light of the world even today then he should also be the light of heaven. Um, there should also be the peace of heaven and also the love of heaven. Those things should be a part of heaven and something that we are look forward, looking forward to more than anything. The Bible tells us that there is no sun in heaven. Do you know that? No sun in heaven. Jesus is the light of it. Jesus is the light of it. He'll even be the light of the world, the new heaven and the new earth that will come. 
it's one of those things that's really interesting because Jesus, the Bible says, is the light of the world. And yet we sometimes ask why he will not dispel the darkness of our own day, you know. And I suppose that's one of those things that we recognise because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The light has indeed come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. No, that's not the case in heaven. Heaven is filled with light. There is no sorrow there. We have a hope to look forward to greater than anything else that we can comprehend. Turn for a minute with regards to um, its attainment in, uh, in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, in, uh, Paul speaks about this wonderful thing that we've, we have attained, that we have received because of faith, that we are justified in verse 1. Paul writes here saying, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So then we see that in the text, sorrow itself should not overwhelm those who are in Christ. Sorrow won't overwhelm those who are in Christ. Matter of fact, we will be filled with hope. We will be filled with that joy. Whatever sorrow we suffer today won't find a place in the glory of the eternal tomorrow. It won't be there. It won't be in in heaven, we will have absolute joy there. Um, I'm sweating over here, over here. Phil, would you mind maybe turning on a couple of fans? Just to circulate some of the air. Sorry, I'm getting quite hot. I might take this off. Sorry. There's a, uh, there's a future home that we're looking forward to, one that we're not going to be sorrowing for. The Bible has a wonderful expression in it, attempts to give um, some comparison to our temporary sufferings of today compared to this eternal heaven of tomorrow. Turn, you're in Romans 5, turn forward to chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul simply writes there, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So much more is written in this passage, but I want you to notice the amazement that the writer has as he struggles even to compare um, that which is to come with the sufferings of this present time. He says, for I reckon, 
I, um, I count, I, I, I've considered the sum of everything, everything that I've already revealed to you of the joy of eternal life. I've, I've made an account of it all and I have reckoned it. I, this is an accounting term. This isn't like the Australian, I reckon. You know, this is a, a complete reckoning, a complete understanding of everything, that have gone, everything that's gone before. Everything that I've told you before about the joy of heaven, I therefore come to this sum total. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be. Notice, shall be. It's yet future. It's not a present state. It's a future unchanging state which shall be. There's not going to be any change once we are in that state. Once we have attained to, to, to heaven, once we are there, there is no change to that. It is a permanent state. It is future, shall be, but it is going to be permanent at that point. Shall be revealed in us. One more time. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If you think that to be a wonderful consideration, then let me go on a little bit more. Your trials... No matter how severe your trials are today, no matter how difficult it is to endure some of the things in life today, it won't even have a comparison. You won't even be considering of it when you're in heaven with the Lord. There will not be sorrow there. And we are not to sorrow as those who have no hope. Clear it is that there are those who have no hope. We recognise those. We'll talk about that in time to come. But there's truly no reason why they can't have any hope. They can absolutely have hope if there would be those willing to share the gospel of hope with them. If we have the desire that all people would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and not all will, we recognise that. Yet, we are to share it. We are to share of the hope that we are looking forward to. I've often spoken about that passage in, in Peter's epistle where he writes, you know, be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. They see an evident hope in you. They see something about you that they're looking forward to. They, even in your own presence, they, they, can, they, they sense that there is a hope, that there's something that you have that they desperately want to have and they desperately desire. Then share it. Be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that is in you. And that is the hope that he speaks about here. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We think about these trials and we think about the difficulties. I want you to think about how Paul speaks about suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, moving forward through your Bible. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. Some of you realise and remember the trials and the sufferings of, of Paul the Apostle. Yeah, You remember he spoke about it. He'd... he'd um, how many times had he been stoned? They, they stoned him basically to death once, uh, but he seemed to have not died. He was able to get up and continue to walk. He'd been beaten with rods several times um, to the tune of 40 save one. Uh, anything above 40, he was considered abominable, so they usually stopped at 39. He was shipwrecked three times, so much so that if you saw Paul getting on a ship, you wouldn't go on, you know. Um, so 
you know, and he suffered, he suffered many things, many trials, many times in hunger, many times in thirst, many times in the waters, many, many burdens that he had. I mean, he suffered more than I think any of us have ever suffered. And this is how he refers to the suffering here in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, For our light affliction is but for a moment. Which is, he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is that shall be state. This is, we're looking at things that are not going to change. We're looking forward to that which is eternal, which will remain and be that way for all eternity, forever. You see it? You see, this is that B state that I was speaking about. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Everything that you endure today is temporary, and it will not last forever. It is a light affliction, no matter what it is. Compared to the glory that shall be revealed, it is a light affliction. This is what we are to focus on. This is the hope that we are to look forward to. We are not to sorrow as those which have no hope. Beloved, this was a chastisement of Paul to the Thessalonians. It wasn't a praise to them. You know, do not sorrow as those who have no hope. You are, that's not our call. Our call is to rejoice in the heaven to come. The second point, a future home to which we hope for. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Paul speaks here to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians at this time were also enduring a reasonable amount of persecution. So they were struggling with the persecution that was coming upon them. Many of them had thought that they'd missed the rapture of the church. They recognised that the evil that was happening within the world around them at that time is an evil that's spoken about in the Bible concerning Christians. We know that the Christian church is going to be persecuted. We know Jesus spoke about that, that with regards to the last days. But prior to that, the extremity of that event, the Bible teaches that the church is to be caught up, to be raptured, to basically escape this world. I know it's weird. I didn't write it. The Lord put it in there, and it's really clear in the scriptures that the church is to be raptured. And they were struggling with this entire concept that perhaps that they'd missed it or perhaps it had not come. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Jesus was the one who, who, who gave us that phrase with respect to those who die in Christ. They sleep in Christ. He doesn't speak about it as, as, as death to that extent. Um, death is a term used at times to identify those who receive to themselves the recompense of their error. Uh, those who will... Uh, receive to themselves the wages of their sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death in the Bible is not part of the original scheme of things. I don't know if you're aware of that. Death came into the world and death will be coming out of the world. Death is a temporary state. It's one of those things that that's probably one of the reasons why you find it really, really strange when a loved one passes away. It's something incomprehensible about it because it's just not there. 
they're just not there. I, when my mum passed away, it was very much like that. I'd, I knew that she wasn't there anymore, that she just wasn't there. Um, and it was just incredible to consider that, but it was also very strange. We naturally seem to find death a very, very strange thing. How can a person die? Well, the reason why we have this inner feeling that this seems to be just so strange, we know that everybody does, but we find it really strange because that's not the original plan. The origin of mankind was not, man was not created to die, but sin came into the world and death by sin, the Bible says. Sin came into the world and death by sin. The Bible presents that death is an enemy of man and will have an end. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. But there are many who are living life without any hope. And Paul is chastising here the believers who sorrow even as others that have no hope. They have hope. Death is not something that's going to overcome you. You have eternal life. It is simply a transition from one state to another. Death will usher in everlasting life. You die. Paul speaks about that. He says, being, being, um, being um, present here in this world, I'm not yet absent from the body, but absent from the body, I will be present with the Lord. I will be present with the Lord. But there are many people who are walking in a particular way today, thinking that they will attain to life, but they will not attain to life. There are many people thinking that there is their way that they're planning on going that will give them life, but the Bible says there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that's something that I don't want anybody here to be caught up in. Do not be caught up in your own way. There is only one way and it's through the Lord. It's through the Lord. Jesus actually spoke about it. He said, enter ye in at the straight gate. That means straight, narrow, tight. Like That's the old phrase for a straight jacket, right? Tight, straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. I'm not sugarcoating this, beloved. This is simply what the Bible says. This is not the way for those of the church of Thessalonica. And Paul writes, therefore, sorrow not even as others which have no hope. What hope is that? Well, it's the hope of the future home that we hope for, that we look forward to. How did they attain to this hope? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. It's a practical way. There's a practical way that people have attained to this hope. They've gone practically from death to life. From condemnation to justification. Turn to John chapter 5. Gospel of John chapter 5. <coughs> Listen to the words of Christ as you, as you read this incredible passage. John chapter 5 verse 24 is what we're looking for. Jesus emphasises this. He emphasises this with the first two words, verily, verily. He's, he's emphasising that, saying, truly, truly. You know, this is an absolute fact. This is a true fact. Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Is passed from death unto life. The Bible goes on elsewhere and it speaks about us in the past tense saying that we were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, we were born essentially dead, dead of the spirit of God, dead of the spirit of life. This is why the Bible speaks about the new birth. We need to be born of the spirit. We're already born of life. We need to be born of the spirit. So we were born essentially dead, but now in believing in Christ, believing in him that's in Christ, we have everlasting life, not unto condemnation, but a pass from death to life. It was Romans chapter 5 that spoke about sin coming into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for all have sinned. All have sinned. Any godly people here that have not sinned? No. We've all sinned. We've all broken God's commandments. We've all failed. We all come short of the glory of God. We all need hope and the only hope that we can find is not in ourselves i don't know how good how much you guys have tried to be good uh i've tried pretty hard to be good um i still try now really hard to be good and i find it impossible impossible to be perfectly good um now my, my thought life is not great sometimes my actions are not great you know and if it was relying on me i would have no hope I would have to sorrow as those who have no hope. But thankfully, heaven is not up to me. I believe in the one who secured it for me. I believe in the one who secured it for me. Turn forward in your Bibles to uh, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Another epistle of Paul, verse 13. So you grasp the entirety of being previously dead in our sins. Paul speaks of it here in verse 13. Colossians 2 verse 13. He speaks to the Colossians and he writes, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. Quickened simply means brought to life. Quickened, brought to life. Hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Those ordinances were the commandments, the commandments of God. They are the ordinances that were written and they were written against us. How are they written against us? Well, because they reveal to us that we've broken God's laws. They reveal to us that we've broken God's laws. God's laws, we see that in Exodus chapter 20, it speaks about the Ten Commandments. You've all heard of them. They're not ten suggestions, they're ten commandments. They're commandments, they're absolute. They're not just true for you or true for me, they're true for all people. When we measure ourselves according to those commandments, we see that we are broken under them. They are ordinances that are written essentially against us. They are ordinances written to condemn us. We cannot be saved by them. 
We can only be condemned by them. The law isn't given to save. You can't be good enough. You can't now all of a sudden start keeping the Ten Commandments and think you've got a happy home of heaven. You know, the Bible doesn't teach that. They are written to condemn us, not to save us. We are saved by the gospel. We are saved by the one who took it out of the way, took away those ordinances, took away those commandments. What did he do with them? Nailed them to his cross. Those commandments are nailed now to the cross. Jesus Christ paid the price of those commandments. This is eternal life. This is eternal life. If you've believed the gospel, you are justified by faith. The penalty was paid by Christ and you are no longer to be tried for the crimes that Jesus Christ had paid for. In legal terms, we refer to it as, um, as double jeopardy, something I'll speak about in, in, in a future message. But in short, you simply cannot be tried for the crimes you have previously committed and now paid for. So if you've been tried for 10 years for a particular act and you've paid that debt, you cannot be again condemned against it. You get a fine in the mail for a traffic violation, you've paid it, it cannot be put against you again. You've paid the fine. Jesus did that. He paid our fine. He paid our fine. And we are legally set free. We are legally set free if we have trusted in Christ, if we've accepted that payment that he's made. Forgiveness of sin is the first item I wanted you to understand why you have that hope. You have this hope because your sins have been forgiven. The second thing that I want you to think about is through the forgiveness of your sins, you also have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein ye stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So we have peace with God. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good thing. I don't know about you, but that, to me that's a pretty good thing. You know, the Bible says I was once an enemy of God. Now I have peace with God. And that peace that I have with God permeates my life. It's just such a joy. I can rest. I don't have any fears. I don't have any anxieties with respect to my relationship to God. You know, I have peace with God, not by my acts, not by my doing, but by my faith in Christ and what he's done. Lastly, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The last part of this point. last part of this is that we have hope of an eternal kingdom and an innumerable company of angels. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22. The writer says, But ye are come unto Mount Sion. Ye. Notice it's the plural. Ye. Okay. Really, really important. The Bible differentiates between the singular pronoun and the plurals. Thou, thee, thy, thine are all singular, speaking to you personally, individually, right? 
ye, you, your, yours is plural. Okay, there's the distinction. English used to have that. We don't have it anymore. But the Greek certainly has it, and so too the Hebrew. So there's a distinction in those pronouns. But ye, this is the church, ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall, we, shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. We have a hope, we have a glorious hope of an eternal kingdom and an innumerable company of angels. I don't know what that's going to be like. But I'm looking forward to it, whatever it is. Third point is a future home to which we are brought. To which we are brought. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. It's an interesting picture that's come down to us through tradition. And it's an interesting picture that we have of, um, of, of, of death. The death comes to you and he comes to you uh, in a... Uh, well, you ever seen The Grim Reaper? Those of you who are old enough used to watch those commercials that spoke about AIDS virus when it came through. Interestingly enough, that AIDS virus has killed 30 million people to date. You know, we don't have any lockdowns, but anyway, that's another thing. But that grim reaper was, the, was this picture that, that they would have, and that was a picture of death, right? That was an image of death. And it was a, it's a picture that actually comes directly out of the Scriptures, and it was come down through us by tradition. Um, Revelation 14 says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest on the earth is ripe. Verse 19 of that passage says, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It's not a positive sign there. This potential for death for those who don't know Christ is not a good one. This is this grim reaper. Well... Death does come, and those who do not know the Lord should indeed fear when he comes, because they too are brought to their future home by him. There's a story told of a certain man who was walking in his neighbourhood, and when he was walking in his neighbourhood, and he came face to face with death. And he noticed an expression of surprise on the creature's horrid face. But they passed one another without speaking. The fellow was frightened and went to a wise man to ask what should be done. And the wise man told him that death had probably come to take him away the next morning. And the poor fellow was terrified at this. And he asked however he should, he should escape. 
The only solution the two could think of was that the victim should drive all night to a distant city and so elude death. So the man drove to the other city. It was a terrible journey. It was one that had never been done in one night before, but he made it. And when he arrived, he congratulated himself, having eluded death. Just then, death came up to him and tapped him on the shoulder. Excuse me, he said, but I have come for you. Why? exclaimed the terrified man. I thought I saw you yesterday near my home, many miles away. Exactly, said death. That's why I looked surprised, for I had been told to meet you in this city today. Can't elude death. Can't elude death. Well, if that's true, the death are going to usher the wicked to their future home, it is wonderfully more true to see that in our text, those who have a future home, will God bring? Will God bring? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. We will indeed be brought to this future home. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. This future home is where God dwells. Now, this particular passage in Mark 13 speaks about a time after the Great Tribulation. All right? So the text specifically speaks to those who are uh, here on earth during that time and potentially those of the Jews. But the point is the same. Mark chapter 13. There is a gathering here in verse 26. says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Transversely, we also see the wicked gathered. Have a look down a little bit further in verse 37. And he answered and said unto them, speaking about the, uh, the, the tares and the wheat, and he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As for the tares, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. The kingdom is the future home of those who love God and who are saved by his son who died for their sin. The focus of this per first part of heaven and hell series is indeed heaven but you often see both of these are often included together though we're speaking specifically about heaven we can also recognize hell is often there as its counterpart it's there as its counterpart just as one example of the passage of mark tells us that the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in heaven but the sinner has no light in him and will abide in darkness forever why well, because the light that they are offered, they've refused. 
The light that they are offered, they are refused. Matthew, how did I write Mark? Sorry. Started with an M. So, do you want to read it again? No. It's in Matthew. Matthew 13. Mark doesn't have that many verses in chapter 13. What are you talking about? Guys, you need to really pick up your game with this Bible reading stuff. All right. Sorry about that. My apologies. I even get corrected while I'm preaching my sermon. It's unbelievable now. God bless you. Righteous are going to be shining forth as the sun. It's really... In heaven is light. I want you to understand something. This is really important, and we'll touch on this again in the future, but whatever heaven is, as glorious as heaven is, hell is the counterpart in Scripture. All right? Heaven is filled with light, Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the brethren who shine forth as, as the light of the sun. That's also spoken about in the book of Daniel. speaks about how those who are the, the righteous... Those, and, and understand, we're not righteous because of anything that we've done. We're righteous because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's not because there's something special about me. Oh, you know, every single person in the world is special. That's why Jesus Christ died for every single person of the world, but not every person of the world wants him. You know, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to change from their evil. And this is the tragedy. So everything that heaven is, hell is the exact opposite. So as glorious as heaven is, as miserable hell would be. As light as heaven is, hell will be darkness. It is absolute darkness in Scripture. It is a darkness, matter of fact, that can be felt. It's a darkness that can be felt. And why is that? Well, Jesus wrote in John 10, or he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light, of life. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, in verse 17 to 19, it's often a passage that's missed as... Um, as we often preach from John 3.16, the Gospel. But John 17-19 to 19 explains the conditions, terms and conditions of heaven. And he writes and he says this, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Beloved, there is going to be a future home, a future home for both those who love the light and for those who love the darkness. Whatever you die loving is what you're going to be keeping. Whatever you die loving is what you are going to be keeping. If you love the darkness, you will have the darkness retained and it will be for all eternity. And if you love the light, if you are humble enough, and you need to be humble to receive the light of Christ, if you are humble and you receive the light of the, of the glory of God, 
then you will have light for all eternity. Whatever it is that you love today and retain to your death, you will receive for all eternity as your future home. In fact, you will be brought there. For those of us who are looking for a new home and a new hope, and that is the hope of heaven, there's an interesting story told of a missionary couple who had long served the Lord in Africa. And they were finally brought back to the shores of the United States where they began their journey some 40 years earlier. On the docks was the largest crowd of people that they had ever seen. They were waving flags and banners and shouting for joy at the arrival of the ship that was carrying its precious cargo. But that cargo was not the missionary couple whose long journey um, they saw return. On that same ship was President Theodore Roosevelt, who had spent several months as part of the Smithsonian African Expedition, collecting some 11,000 animals for the Smithsonian's new Natural History Museum. Not a single person of the thousands that came to welcome the President's return in 1910 were there for this missionary couple. Not a single person was there for this missionary couple. The aged wife only looked at her husband with a tear forming in her eye. And just like those who have long lived together, he knew her thoughts and he simply replied, it's okay, my dear, we're not home yet. Last point this morning, future home in which we are comforted now. The text we were looking at was verse 13 to 14 and finishes, concludes for us for this sermon in verse 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The purpose of Paul's writing to the church of Thessalonica was to tell them the truth of that future home. A future home that was yet to come. And it was for the purpose of comforting them that they might endure to the end and receive the prize that was set before them. Of all the people in the Bible, there are none to follow and to encourage us as an example other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all people, he knew both the trials that he would endure and also the joy that is set before him that he could be comforted by. As for his trials, I'm not going to be going into any details with respect to that here. Nevertheless, I just want you to know that they would be so severe that three times the Lord prayed that the Father would remove this cup from him, not to drink of this cup, and saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. It's incredible to consider that. Remember, Jesus was a man. He became man. God became man. He came into this world as a child. He grew um, and he endured and he learnt and he continued to grow and was faithful to the Lord even unto death. But he, he, he too experienced the fears and the anxieties. The Bible presents Jesus as having sweated blood having sweated blood. We, you know, it was a long time ago that we didn't understand that. We thought that that was some sort of a fiction. But it's actually a true account. It happens in um, people that are on death row to this day. 
that they literally sweat blood. It's a little bit of blood and a lot of sweat, but it's literally what comes through their pores. It's, a, it's an extreme form of anxiety, an extreme form of fear. And Jesus experienced that, and we see that in the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to consider with me Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We all remember Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter. And it speaks in detail about all these men of faith. They were all looking for a country. They were looking for a place. They were looking for their future home. Um, they, they anticipated it. They rejoiced in it. They were, they were living their lives in anticipation of this future home. Uh, but they never attained to it. They never received it. Yet they lived their life in the hope of it, looking forward to it. But the greatest of all is found in chapter 12. The greatest of all is found in chapter 12. In verse 1, verses 1 to 3, we'll read. He writes, speaking about those things that had just gone before, saying, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. He's speaking about comforting yourself now. We comfort ourselves now looking forward to that future home and that future hope that we have to look forward to. When we endure the trials of life, knowing that there is a joy set before us, we endure mocking, knowing that there is a future heavenly home where we will be received with joy. We endure the hardness, knowing that there is a comfort that awaits us. Paul wrote to comfort the church of Thessalonica, but he didn't write any platitudes. There was no cliches that he used. He simply spoke sound words and truth to them. He didn't speak vanity. He didn't tell them what he thought that they wanted to hear. He spoke to them the truth. Paul wrote that they might know the truth of that which was to come. And he concluded, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Why, this is why, therefore, you are to comfort one another with these words. That's that word, wherefore. The context of the passage in Thessalonians 4 is indeed the rapture of the church. Nevertheless, he speaks of heaven there. And that's where the church is going to be taken up. Paul wrote of being taken to that future home to comfort the Thessalonian church. Jesus also had words respecting our future home that would comfort us. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll conclude on this. Matthew chapter 5. Not Mark like last time. Don't go to Mark. Matthew. All right? Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Famous passage that we have in the Bible and one that you could be so encouraged in. <coughs> this is the beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We fail so often because our focus and our eyes are here. We fail so often. We fall short so often because our concentration is here. Our eyes, our minds are here. Our lives being here are not going to remain here. We have our conversation in heaven. We have our hope in heaven. We have our life and our manner of life in heaven. We are not to live as those who have no hope. We are to live filled with the knowledge that heaven is a joy that, and a present expectation for us. Don't live your lives worried about the things that are going to be going on in this world. It's not going to be better. You know, this is as good as it gets. Sorry. But heaven is where we're supposed to have our focus. It's there that we have our joy. That's why Jesus said, you know, they're going to rejoice and be exceeding glad. These are, these are temporary endeavours. And I know, I know for, for, for many of you, pretty much all of us, sometimes our worst enemy is us. Sometimes our, our biggest trouble is not what's going on outside, it's what's going on in here. You know, sometimes our, our biggest dilemma is dealing with our own selves. We know the things that we should be doing and we don't. We, we struggle in the basic things of, of life far, far too often. And that's all of us, beloved, in one, to one degree or another, we all do, you know. But we're not going to endure this forever. We're not going to endure this forever. We have life in Christ. We have hope in Christ. Our joy is in him. Our hope is in him. We are not to focus on me. We are to focus on him. We are to focus on ourselves. We are to focus on him. And where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. We are to set our treasure in heaven. You know, that is the joy. That is the joy. For those who have completely submitted themselves to Christ, those who have given up their life for what it was, knowing there is no hope in it, and have taken Jesus Christ at his words, to them is this hope given. There was a lady a number of years ago who was, she was on the verge of taking her own life. And, and it's a real tragic thing because we're seeing so much of that happening today. And there was a fascinating aspect to it because there's one of the things that she really recounts 
And she recounts listening to a message or a sermon. There was something in that sermon that triggered a thought within her mind with regards to her own life because the minister had actually told the congregation that they need to die to themselves and live to Christ, that, they, that their, their, their lives are dead in trespasses and sins, but God will take it. God will take their life for what it is. And she went to bed in tears and just desiring to die. And she basically said to the Lord, I don't want my life anymore. If you want it, take it. And he did. He did. He gave her a new heart and a new life. And she ever lives to tell the story of that. There are a lot of people who come to the edge of their life not wanting their life anymore. Give it to Christ. He'll take it. (laughs) He'll take it. You don't think it's worth anything. He thinks it has infinite value. That's why he died for you. You know, you think you're worthless and yet he thinks you're worth dying for. (laughs) Let Jesus take it. Let him take it. To those who have trust in Christ, they have a hope. To them is given the kingdom of heaven. To them is the comfort. To them is the inheritance of the earth. To them is complete fulfilment. To them is mercy. To them is the very sight of God. To them is the family of God. To them is the kingdom of heaven. To them is great reward set aside and awaiting its recipient. The future home is heaven. And those who have given themselves to Christ and believe the testimony of this book, they are the citizens of that country to come. Are you? Are you the citizen of that country to come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for the joy that is set before us. I thank you, dear Father, for the hope of that future home. I thank you, dear Lord, that we have that to look forward to greater than anything else that we can ever expect here. And I ask you, dear Lord, that you would fill our hearts with the knowledge of the truth of it. that you would be glorified and that we might live and live to the fullness of Christ. I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with those who are here, those who have heard this message this morning, and that if it might be, dear Lord, that these wonderful words would convert the hearts of some. Let them give their lives to you, dear Lord, and do so completely, I pray, as you can do wondrous things with them. I thank you, dear Lord, for this time and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.